If you would take your Bible, open it to Genesis chapter 6. We're looking at the Ark and the Covenant this morning. Genesis chapter 6, the Ark and the Covenant. As you kind of settle in and get your Bible in front of you, I'm going to pray over the message one more time. Genesis chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 22. Father, I want to thank you for every precious soul that's walked through these doors on this morning. Thank you for all you did last night at the Harvest Fest, the joyous time that we had, remembering that you're the light of the world. In the midst of darkness, you still shine. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Help us to walk in that light as you are in the light, Father. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, his blood cleansing us from all sin. Thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And you tell us that your word is to be followed because it has benefits, not only for this life, but also for the life to come. Godliness has eternal benefits. As we look at Noah, whose name means rest or comfort, Noah found a hope in the midst of a fallen and demonized generation. He found an anchor, an anchor that was the hope anchor of his soul. He found, Lord, that you told him to build an ark. An ark was a work of faith. You told him to look upon things not yet seen, to see the world through the eyes of faith. Lord, we think of the apostles when you taught on forgiveness and they said, Lord, increase our faith. We think of the man with the demonized son who said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Your word builds faith in us, Lord. We're here in humility coming before the God of majesty, the God that breathed this world into existence, the God that sent his only son, God in human form that paid our penalty. As we look at the story of Noah, may it stir our own story of faith. Faith is going to be tested. It will be perfected. You are the object of our faith, but we know we're going to hit obstacles in this life, Lord, so help us to grow deeper in our roots, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, increase our faith. We are here to hear from you, so help me to get out of your way. Speak to your church. Give us ears to hear what you would say. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. The Ark and the Covenant, Genesis chapter 6. Let me introduce the study with a reminder of Hebrews 11, verse 7, that says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith, because the Bible says in the previous verse, without faith it is impossible to please God, for we must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Noah is an excellent man of his time because he believed God for things not yet seen. He probably had never seen rain before, and he certainly had never seen a worldwide flood. It's most likely that he lived 100 miles inland, and yet God told him, I'm going to send a flood, and I'm going to instruct you to build something that's going to become an object of faith, but it's much more than that. It will be an object of salvation. 
It would become salvation for him and his household. And as you begin to peel back the layers of Noah's Ark, it's not just some cute little story with a little ark and animals inside smiling. It's a story of salvation. The ark is a picture of Christ. And he offers salvation from the flood, salvation from destruction. God is holy and righteous. He will judge. But God has provided an ark, and there's one door, and Jesus is that way. These, Genesis 6, 9, are the records, toledah is the Hebrew word, of the generations of Noah. Noah, Noah's name means rest or comfort. The Bible itself is a record. It records different records of people's lives and things that happened. It goes through and chronicles people who existed, people very much like us, who had to wrestle with faith and belief in their own time. And Noah is certainly an excellent example of a man who exercised faith. If I was to write a record of your life, or if some author was to pick up your story, what would your record of faith look like? What would the story say? What's the biggest thing that you faced in your life? You know, uh, faith will always have an obstacle. It could be the giant like Goliath. It could be the walls of Jericho. It could be the Jordan River. It could be the Red Sea. It could be the Egyptian army. Faith is going to be tested. And Noah had a big test before him. He knew he was going to be mocked. He knew he was going to be ridiculed. But the Lord said, a flood is coming. Who are you going to believe? That's what you have to ask yourself. And I've discovered something, I'm sure you have as well, that sometimes the biggest obstacle to my faith is me. <laughs> we get in our own way sometimes. We, we sometimes uh, overthink things or we complicate our lives when really God's just saying, just take me at my word. I've been around a long time. I know more than the so-called experts know. Believe me and follow me. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was three things. Mark them in your Bible. He was a righteous man. He was blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Three linking statements about Noah. He was righteous, he was blameless, and he walked with God. Let's break it down for a second. Righteous is the Hebrew word sadiq. It means to be just or lawful or a righteous man. In the Hebrew picture language, it means hooked so that your life follows. The picture is of a fish hook, the tasad, a door, dalet in Hebrew, pointing to the path of life, and the back of the head, which is kuf, which is the idea of following. What's the path that you are following? A righteous man follows a righteous path. Dr. Seekin says the word can also mean to hunt for the dust. The word is connected to the word for holy or threshed. He says, and I'm quoting, righteousness comes when we allow our life to be threshed, breaking the chaff from the grain and hunt down the smallest piece to throw it into the wind, to be carried away. It's sweeping out the old leaven like we see in the Passover imagery. Righteousness is the solid, real good that is left when the chaff is blown away, close quote. If you want to be a righteous person, it's going to be a process, and that's good news for us. We don't just arrive at righteousness. I'm talking about practical righteousness. It's a process, and God is in the business of constantly showing you what the chaff is and getting it out, and you got to kind of just throw it up into the air, and the good stuff's going to land because it's heavier. The kernel of wheat's going to land, and the stuff that you don't need is going to blow away. Let it blow away. You want to be righteous? 
then let God sweep the leaven out of your life. Noah did that. It's a wonder that Noah walked with God. He lived in such a corrupted time that the Bible says in verses five through eight that every thought and intent of man's heart was only evil continually. Man was able to take every thought at this time and twist it or form it into something demonized, into something uh, idolatrous, into something self-centered. And God was sorry that he had made mankind He was grieved in his heart, as we looked at last Sunday. God does care, and he was grieved, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And anyone who knows Jesus Christ, we can say that. We can put our name there. Michael found grace in the eyes of the Lord, not when I was moving towards God. In fact, God was trying to get my attention, and I kept running from him, and he awakened my soul, and at least, you know, he proclaimed the gospel to me, and By his grace, there was a response. Noah was righteous, verse 9, and he was blameless. Tamim is the Hebrew word. For blameless, it means entire. It means integrity, truth, wholesome, entire, full, sound, healthful. The word speaks of an integrity and innocence. It can be found in a word that describes sacrificial animals as free from defect. When you are blameless, you are healthy. God wants you to be healthy in body, soul, and mind. He wants you to be a healthy person in every way you can be healthy. And that's the idea of blamelessness. It's not perfection that we're talking about. Nobody's perfect. Noah gets off the ark and he blunders and he makes a mistake. He was human. But there was no open charge against Noah. Nobody could say, hey, Noah says one thing. He preaches righteousness and he hammers away at his ark, but I see him over here doing this every Friday. No, they couldn't say that of Noah. His walk was in concert with his talk. People do not expect you to be perfect. You need to know that unbelievers who are looking at you do not expect you to be perfect because if you were, they would have no hope because everybody is imperfect. But they do look for consistency. They do look for a person who doesn't preach one thing out of one side of their mouth and do another when they're doing something else in their lives. That was Noah. Noah was blameless. It says of an elder that he's to be blameless in 1 Timothy. And Noah walked with God, just like Enoch did, as we saw earlier. The idea of the Hebrew here from one of the commentaries is walking with God is giving God the pride of place. And Noah walked with God, would you notice? He was a man righteous, verse nine, blameless in his time. He was a man who was outstanding in his time. This is your time. The Bible says it's appointed unto a man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. This is your time. This is not a dress rehearsal. You don't get to do it over again. This is your time. I always love the speeches of football and baseball coaches. Team gets to the World Series, uh, Super Bowl, and the coach will give a speech to fire up the team, and often you'll hear those words, this is your time. You may not get back to this game ever again. This is your time. Friends, brothers and sisters, this is your time. You're not going to get it back again. How are you doing? 
How are you exploiting that time? God has put you in Corona or maybe Norco or Yorba Linda or Riverside for such a time as this. You have the ability to affect people just by walking with God and being a person who's living out a right life. This is the time. But your walk is not just about you. Your walk is about others. The next verse says, and Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now this rings a, a, I can relate with this so well because I'm the father of three sons. Each of them are a gift from God. Uh, Two teenage boys and another one that's in his 20s now. And I realize that my sons watch me. They see how I respond to life. They watch whether or not I'm a man of integrity. And you all know that sons want to be like their father. And daughter and father relationships are so precious. The Bible says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Don't be a fool, the Bible says. You've got other people walking in your footsteps. Noah, Daniel, and Job are singled out for their righteousness in Ezekiel 14, 14, and verse 20. They were rare in their day. And I ask you, who do you want to be? Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. J. Vernon McGee, in his wonderful style, says, you are a preacher, I'm quoting, whoever you are. It may be in a very small circle, but you are affecting someone. You are a preacher in your own home. This reminds me of a father who kept a jug of whiskey hidden in the corn crib. It was his habit to go out there every morning and get himself a drink. On a snowy morning, he went out to the barn, as was his habit, but this time he heard someone behind him. He turned around and found that it was his little son following him, stepping in the footsteps in the snow where his father had walked. The father asked, what are you doing, son? The little boy answered, I'm following in your footsteps, daddy. He sent the boy back into the house and then went out into the corn crib and smashed that jug of whiskey. He realized that he didn't want his boy to be following in his footsteps. Someone in your home is following in your footsteps. The question is, Where are you leading him? Close quote. You see, Noah had more at stake than he could realize. In fact, if you think about it, the only reason that you and I are here is because Noah believed God. For every family on the earth comes from Noah, his three sons, and their wives. Every person, every race comes from the people that survived the flood. Do you know that in the world right now, there are over 280 flood legends in different cultures? All of them have similar aspects. They talk about a worldwide flood, some of them localized flood. They talk about a few people getting on a boat and surviving and the human population increasing or continuing on, if you will. You are here because of Noah's faith. Now, you may not realize how your faith affects others and even future generations. Noah probably couldn't have imagined that from his family, everything was going to happen in this way. But Noah took God at his word. It wasn't easy. The earth, verse 11, was corrupt in the sight of God. And I would say to you, that's all that really matters is what God sees. It doesn't matter what your friends think, the so-called experts of the day think. What really matters is what does God see? God is a God of truth. He is a God of holiness. What does he say? We should be asking, Father, is this pleasing in your sight? 
That's my question. Well, in God's sight, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. One expression of corruption is violence. The word corrupt is sahat. It's a very strong term. The Hebrew stem occurs seven times in this narrative. And the word corrupt means to ruin or destroy. To corrupt is to destroy. So what God was about to do to them, they had already done to themselves. They had already corrupted themselves. And now God says, the earth has corrupted themselves. Everything that they do, every thought that they think. You know, we think our day is bad, but the time of Noah was a terrible time. Everybody was twisted and distorted in their thinking, and the earth was filled with violence. Violence reminds us of the story of Cain and Abel, and what drove Cain's violence against his brother was jealousy and envy. And now we have an epidemic in our world of Christian persecution. Millions of Christians being persecuted for their faith. It's even happening in the United States. And if stuff doesn't change, it's going to become worse. And when people take out violence against Christians, it's really an expression against the God of the Bible. In fact, Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You keep kicking against it, but you're gonna lose, Saul. But Saul was marvelously converted. Violence is an indicator of people getting away from God and taking violent actions against other people to express hate or to carry out their envious plots. And God looked on the world He looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh, verse 12, had corrupted their way upon the earth. This is a condensed form of really everything that's come from Genesis 3 and the fall up to Genesis 6, verse 8. People were twisted in their thinking and God looked and everything was corrupted. Everything was soiled with sin and uh, just debased life. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Mark that. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Violence had flowed out because of them to destroy is that Hebrew stem for corrupt. And some ancient uh, versions have it et ha-aretz. And it has the idea that the earth's topsoil had to be cleansed from all the corruption. Hence, the flood was even an image of washing the earth from all of its pollution. 2 Peter 3.6 says, The world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. That world perished. It is gone. Those people are gone. Everything about it is gone. It's over. God said, I'm going to destroy everything and I'm going to start over with you, Noah, and your family. Everybody that walked around with a chip on their shoulder thinking it could never happen, all those people who mocked Noah every time they walked by his ark, they're gone, gone. So much of us put so much uh, emphasis on what people think about us in high school. Can I tell you, people who are still kind of just right around that age, it doesn't matter. What they think about you in high school doesn't matter. But what you want to do is let God's plan for your life drive your walk. So here's Noah. The earth is corrupted 
And God says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. We don't know really what wood gopher wood is. And you shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. The word ark in Hebrew is teva, T-E-V-A. It's interesting, in the Hebrew picture language, when you take this, the individual letters, the ark means the house of the sign, get this, or the house of the cross. The ark was a floating uh, vessel of salvation. Its flag was a cross. I don't know if you knew that, but I'm just kidding. (laughs) You guys all look really serious at me. But it was a floating vessel of salvation. That's what the whole message is. It was a sign. It was a way of preserving life in the midst of the judgment. Make an ark. This is only used in two places, Teva in the Old Testament. It's used in the Bible for Noah's ark. And guess the other place it's used? The basket of Moses. When Yoshebed put little Moses in a mini ark, Teva, and sent him down the Nile River with an edict to kill all the Hebrew babies and the little uh, basket that she so tenderly prepared for Moses became a boat of salvation. Only used twice, those two places. Imagine Moses writing Genesis and seeing that word and going, hey, that reminds me of a mini boat I rode in when I was just a young little baby. That's the beauty of this word. It's a protection from danger and what looks like certain death. And this is the deliverance. See the word pitch in verse 14? That's the word kofer. It's transliterated into English, K-O-P-H-E-R. It means properly to cover. And it speaks of pitch or a resinous substance to caulk. Yom Kippur in English is the day of atonement. And Kippur is from the Hebrew word kafar, meaning to cover. So not only was the ark a means of salvation, but the word for the pitch is the word for atonement. And the boat was sealed with the pitch inside and out, and you and I are sealed by the blood of the lamb. This word for pitch, reminding us of atonement, tells us that the ark becomes a picture of atonement. And it is, it is sealed, just like the door of the Hebrews was sealed with the blood of the Passover lamb. And they had to apply the blood of the lamb like this to the doorpost and the lentil, the top of the door. And even that becomes a message of the cross. If I see the blood, I will pass over you and judgment will not hit your home. The word kafar literally means to cover the mouth. It's everything that God could say against us, but he doesn't. He opened not his mouth. When Jesus was dying on the cross and when he was facing the cross, he could have he responded. He could have uh, condemned the whole landscape and the whole human population, but he opened not his mouth. That's kafar, to atone, to not say something when you could say something to cover somebody by the righteousness of another. This is, in essence, the first mention of atonement in the Bible, although in Genesis 3.21, we see that God made coverings for our first parents. But this is an ark of covering. It's protection from Almighty God. And that's exactly what happened. Psalm 32.7 says, You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble 
You surround me with songs of deliverance. And Psalm 119, 114 says, you are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Can you imagine after the flood started and Noah realized all that had happened, how grateful he must have been that he did it God's way? You know, the Bible says that there was only one door to the ark and God shut that door. I wonder if there were people outside saying, Noah, we've changed our mind. Let us into the ark. I'm sure Noah was very grateful that he obeyed God because he stepped onto an ark of salvation and his family stepped on it with him. And that's the greatest thing that we can do for our families. With all the other things that we can talk about, we must give our faith away. We must lead our families toward the ark of salvation. And this is the beautiful picture that emerges in the Bible. Tori ben, uh, Corey Tim Boone, in her book, The Hiding Place, shared a story of hiding her Bible under her thin prison uniform. She asked God to hide her with, her with his angels from the Nazi guards, and they didn't pay attention to her and let her walk right by with that Bible. There were plenty of uh, rooms in the ark, and there's room in the ark for you. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. There's room in the ark for you. Have you climbed aboard? Are you telling other people that there's salvation and hope in Jesus Christ? The Bible says in Colossians 3.3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, he's got you covered. We've all made mistakes. We've all, in, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he's covered us in his righteousness. In fact, he's cleansed us from all sin. This is the beauty of the ark. There's a deeper picture to it. This is how you shall make it, says God to Noah. The length of the ark is to be 300 cubits. It's breadth, 50 cubits. It's a six to one ratio. Somebody was telling me after uh, first service that they found in uh, some of the early destroyers before uh, technology came a little bit more advanced that they followed a six to one ratio in the same way as Noah's ark and they didn't even know that that was the ratio of Noah's ark. We're just kind of catching up to God, in other words. They found that was the most stable design to fire weapons from a destroyer. So it's to be, uh, its breadth is to be 50 cubits and its height, 30 cubits. A cubit is literally a forearm. So if you took a measurement from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, that's a cubit. Scholars say that's roughly 18 inches, but to simplify it, if you've got the NIV, it says this is how you are to build it. The arc is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. That's a big boat. It was as long as one and a half times a football field. So take a football field and take another half and that's what you've got. That's the length of the ark. Jim, if you would put up that first slide. So here's a comparison. Of course, the ark was a wooden vessel. You've got the Santa Maria, the Wyoming, even the Cuddy Sark, uh, which I didn't bring up, but you got Noah's Ark, 500 feet long. You can see the Titanic up there. And then there's the Queen Mary. Of course, that's steel ship technology. But Noah's Ark was an extremely long, wide, and very accommodating vessel. It yielded a displacement of about 43,000 tons. It contained enough space for approximately a total deck area of 95,700 square feet. Just to give you an idea, we're in a building that's 19,000 square feet total with all the space that we have to accommodate all the animals. 
Um, This is from Henry Morris. He says, the ark was a huge barge-like structure. According to God's instruction, the ark was to be designed for capacity and floating stability rather than for speed and navigability. It can be shown hydrodynamically that a gigantic box of such dimension would be exceedingly stable, almost impossible to capsize. Even in a sea of gigantic waves, the ark could be tilted through any angle up to just short of 90 degrees and would immediately thereafter right itself again. Furthermore, it would tend to align itself parallel with the direction of a major wave advance and thus be subject to minimum pitching. The volumetric capacity of the ark was the capacity of 522 standard livestock cars, such as is used on American railroads. A total of over 125,000 sheep could have been carried on Noah's ark. If you go to the next slide, if you will, Jim, there's been people who have challenged the way the ark looked. The Bible, the description of the ark is really only here in Genesis 6, and all we've got is dimensions. We don't really have shape. So I remember there was a Christian scholar, he was debating an atheist, and this atheist was once a preacher, apparently, and he turned atheist, and he was challenging Noah's Ark, and he was saying, ah, the navigation wouldn't be that great, and the speed wouldn't be that great, and the Christian scholar responded, oh, Noah wasn't trying to go anywhere. (laughs) He was just trying to float. There was nowhere to go, if you read the story. He just trying to float. So, you know, all of these experts who look at it and say, oh, I don't know. Well, this, this is a Christian scholar in the 1600s who took a shot at the ark based upon the biblical dimensions. Jim, would you go to the next one? This artist drew uh, Noah's ark in 1985, also a Christian scholar taking what he had. And you don't have a ton, but you, ha- you do have the dimensions from the biblical data here. But I want to tell you that Noah's ark was a major... Uh, uh, center of a 1993 scientific study headed by Dr. Sion Hong, who, by the way, appeared to be an evolutionist. He had no axe to grind. He wasn't trying to prove the biblical account. But they studied holes of different proportions uh, to discover which design was most practical. No hole shape was found to, be, to significantly outperform the 4,300-year-old biblical design. In fact, the ark's careful balance is easily lost if the proportions are modified. This is from the Answers in Genesis website. Rendering the vessel either unstable, prone to fracture, or dangerously uncomfortable. The research team found that the proportions of Noah's ark carefully balanced the conflicting demands of stability resistance from capsizing, comfort, sea-keeping, and strength. In fact, the ark has the same proportions as a modern cargo ship, close quote. So there's a guy named Johan, and he had a dream that the Netherlands was flooded. He lives in the area of Holland, and this dream really bothered him. So he undertook a uh, project. He was going to make a full-scale model of Noah's ark, and he did it. He did it by hand. He used 14,000 trees, him and five other workers, and it was a multi-year project. If Jim, would you go to the next slide? And this is Johan's Ark. Or, that's the next one. There it is. Johan's Ark. It actually is in the water in the Netherlands today. It's become a huge area where visitors are coming, little kids are coming, and it's piquing interest in the story of the flood. Just to look, up that, look at that giraffe, that's a you know, not a real draft, but it gives you an idea of the scope and magnitude of the vessel. Go to the next one, Jim, if you would. That gives you some proportion there. That's the size from the biblical dimensions and, of course, you know, his own shapes and, and that kind of thing. This is what we're dealing with. 
a, a, a certainly a huge work of faith. And Noah preached, 2 Peter 2.5, he preached righteousness, and he chiseled away at the ark, and he built a work of faith. And I asked you last week, what ark is God calling you to build? That's the question. He says, you shall make a window, look at Genesis 6.16, so hard for the ark, and to finish it to a cubit, that's 18 inches from the top, and set the door of the ark. There's only one door, it's the door of the ark, and the side of it, and you shall make it with lower second and third deck. So there was a window. Many scholars believe the window went all around the top of the ark. You'd need a window with all those animals in the ark, wouldn't you? And um, so he had a window and he built the decks and there was one door, one way to get into the ark. And Jesus in John 10, 9 says, I am the door. Uh, By me, if any man enter, he shall be saved. And then Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way the truth and the life, and no one is coming to the Father except through me. I didn't say that. He said it. So any skeptic of Christianity has to wrestle with Jesus's exclusive statement. Is Jesus the only way to get on the ark and be saved? That's what he said. He said he's the door. He said he's the way. And God says, behold, 17, I, even I, am bringing a flood. Mabul is the word for flood. It's a strong term. It indicates an unparalleled cataclysmic nature of an event. I'm going to bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is upon the earth shall perish. If it was a localized flood, why didn't God just say to Noah, pack a suitcase and you and your family are going to go to the next neighboring country? If it was a localized flood, that would be the logical thing. It'd be a lot less work, a lot less problems. But see, what we have here is a worldwide flood. And the planet bears remnants of that. You can see uh, things that are on the earth today. The Grand Canyon is one example of a cataclysm. There are people who say, well, there were layers, there were ages of the earth, and that's how things fossilized. But when Mount St. Helens blew up and the volcano blew up, in a couple weeks, things were fossilized and looked like they had ages of layers, and it happened in a couple of weeks. The Bible says there was a cataclysm. Jesus says there was a flood. Jesus says there was a Noah. So does Peter. And the question you've got to ask with all the so-called experts is, who are you gonna believe? And Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Noah, It's going to be that same way before the coming of the Son of Man. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever, Psalm 29, 10, and 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people forever. These are the words of Jesus. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house. And remember, the ark was a floating Uh, house with a sign, if you will. He's like a man who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood rose, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house upon the ground with any foundation, without any foundation. The torrent or the flood burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was very great. That's Luke 6 46 through 49. The flood is coming, Noah. Build an ark for the sake of your family, for the salvation of your house. But God says, but I will establish my covenant with you, verse 18. 
And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. What was the part of the covenant that belonged to Noah? They call this the Noahic covenant. What was Noah's part? What did he have to do? Well, he did have to build the ark, but once the ark was done, here's the covenant. All he had to do was get on board. Your part in the new covenant is very similar. You just got to get on board. The ticket's been punched. It's been signed in the blood of the lamb, but you got to climb on board the ark to be saved. That's your participation in the new covenant. Certainly God wants you to follow. Certainly he has works of faith for you to do, but you're part of the covenant and covenant is berit in Hebrew. It means to cut. In the Hebrew picture language, it means the sign of the cross or the sign of my son. And here it is. The ark is a sign. It's a picture of Jesus. And of every living thing, look at verse 19, of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. Verse 20, of the birds after their kind. This reminds me of the early uh, chapters of Genesis after their kind. Of the animals after their kind. Of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. Some people say, well, how did those, how did that, no, I'll get all those animals. Well, they came to him. How many of you seen Evan Almighty? You remember when all the animals are coming to him and it's a problem for his own personal life? <laughs> Where are they coming from? Well, that's what happened. God put something in the animals. Maybe they sensed that the flood was coming. Maybe it was God's spirit pushing them or nudging them along, maybe a combination of both. But the animals started to show up right before the flood came. Can you imagine that? That would have been a pretty cool experience. And Noah got to experience that. He was to take two of every kind. It's going to say seven in the next chapter of clean animals. That probably is for sacrifice and so forth. But for now, it's two of every kind, and they're going to come to you. And people say, well, how could he fit all those animals on the ark? Remember, there's variations within species. So you basically had the basic species coming onto the ark. Noah had lived hundreds of years before this happened. He's pretty smart. He could have taken babies. And God's the one that drew the animals to him. Babies eat less and sleep longer. All he really needed was a pink one and a blue one. Here's another thing. I stole that from Dr. Dino, by the way. Here's another thing. Animals, some animals have the ability to hibernate. So they can hibernate in the winter and basically sleep without food and do that. Some of them can actually do it in the summer. And there are some uh, experts, scientists, who say they believe in every animal there's a latent ability to hibernate. I believe that's true of some humans as well. <laughs> this is my personal opinion. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> you may know somebody like that. I don't know. And they'll come to you and you are to keep them alive. And so all these animals came. And Noah is doing that work of faith, building and planning. And as for you, take for yourself some of all the food, all food which is edible, gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. And here's the final verse. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Let me ask you, Bible students, have you heard Noah say anything? There's not, he has not said one word. The, there's no dialogue going back and forth. We have no record of Noah, Noah asking the Lord to have mercy or to extend the time, although we know he preached. But here's what we got. God said, do this, do this. And Noah said, Lord, what's next? Lord, what's next? 
Got that. Lord, what's next? That's faith. That's obedience. That's what you and I, when we place ourselves in the biblical story, must be asking, yes, Lord. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Yes, Lord, what's next? Give me your list. I call you Lord and Master. I want to do what you say. And that's what Noah did. God commanded, Noah did. That's a disciple. That's a work of faith. That's what it means to be someone who calls Jesus Lord. You're not going to do it perfectly. You're not going to be uh, without your struggles. But as I mentioned earlier, I don't think people are expecting you to be perfect, but you can have a witness from being consistent. And we're about to move into a time at the Lord's table, and we're going to remember that ark of salvation that Jesus has granted us. I'm going to ask the ushers to go ahead and get the communion elements ready, but I want to end with a story that's germane to what I'm talking about. I heard Alistair Begg tell this story. He said, uh, I believe this man called Alistair. He said, I was a, a man working at this company. I had a group of friends, a group of buddies at this company, and we partied together, and this guy was known as the life of the party, and he became a Christian. He'd been a Christian for about a year, and the, the buddies in the office were ribbing him and giving him a hard time, but he was growing in his faith. These men used to frequent what's called a gentleman's club, which is a misnomer. It's not a place for gentlemen. And so a Friday afternoon came and the buddies said, hey, we're going to the club. We're going to the place. Come on, come on. And he said, no, I don't do things like that anymore. And they went, oh yeah, okay, holy Joe. (laughs) You're gonna go to Bible study, huh? Bible study. (laughs) And off they went. And the guy felt pretty crushed. So the weekend came and he got a telephone call, I think that next day. And one of those three friends called him and said, I want to know why you don't go to those places. I just found out that my wife and I are going to have a baby girl. I want to know why you don't go to those places. What you need to know about people who are around you is we all put on facades, we all smile and laugh, but we all gotta go home alone and look ourselves and look at our face in the mirror. We all gotta face our own mortality. We all gotta face the external and internal witness of the God of the Bible speaking to us all the time about who he is. You see, everybody's got to deal with life ultimately with those big questions. And you become a Noah for them. You become a witness of that ark of salvation And the question is, how are we doing with that? I know this congregation is filled with many wonderful, precious people. I know you're taking your faith seriously, and I know you want to lead others to those green pastures and those beautiful still waters. This is our time. This is our time, you guys. God's given us this incredible building. He's given us a neighborhood to witness to. He's given us spheres of influence and platforms in our lives. This is our time. I ask you, are you making the most of it? If you can answer yes, if you knew Jesus was gonna come back tonight and you could say, I wouldn't change a thing in my life, then you're good. But if you look at your heart and you say, no, right now I'm a prodigal. No, I'm not walking in the gifts God gave me. Man, I've, I've had those gifts on the shelf for decades. Then I, I would just say to you, this story is intended to say, get back in the game. This is your time. 
Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for the work of faith that you have done in our midst. It's so awesome to see how beautiful and holy and wonderful you are and how loving you are. Even though you are just and holy and the Bible says you will judge sin, yet you judged that sin on your son at the cross. You made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, as we approach your table, we, we remember you. We remember how you came, how you were born on that Bethlehem night, how you grew and you knew no sin, how you opened your public ministry at the Jordan River. You'd come to fulfill all righteousness because we failed. You never sinned. And then you went to that cross as though you had committed all of our collective sins. The sky grew dark and the earth quaked, signs of judgment. And you said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People have often said you were forsaken so that we wouldn't be. You experienced being forsaken, at least those feelings, so that we might be made whole again. You are our kafar. You are our covering. You are, your blood cleanses from all sin. And if we're Christians, we're in the ark and we're so grateful to have a seat, <laughs> so grateful to have a room. We want to take others with us, Lord. We think of our families. We think of prodigal children and wayward relatives and people we've been praying for. And we, we can see their faces, Lord. And we ask you to give us more opportunity to witness. And maybe that'll just be, it'll continue to be our lives. But whatever opportunities you give us, Lord, help us to maximize those. With your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Jesus Christ, run to that ark of salvation. He's a prayer away. He's paid the price. You just got to get on board. The Bible teaches repentance and faith. So with your head and heart bowed, if you want to turn from your sin and turn to him, it's something like this. I would encourage you to pray it out loud right now. This is your time. Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on that cross for me and rose from the dead. I believe that you are God. I believe you paid the ransom for my sin. And I trust in you as my personal Lord and my Savior. Please change me from the inside out. Cause me to be born again of your Holy Spirit, born from above. Write my name in your book of life. Lord, for those who are opening up their hearts, maybe for prodigals who are trying to put together a prayer, we know you honor a sincere cry of repentance. And so I pray that your living waters will shower this precious congregation. I pray for believers that may be going through some stuff right now that as they come to your table, you'll refresh them, you'll strengthen them, you'll heal them, you'll encourage them and increase our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.